Hello, my name is Corey, and welcome to the RCF Podcast, a place where you can dive deep into what the scriptures say, get caught up on current events, or sit back and listen to topical discussions on life from all ages. Thanks so much for tuning in. Now I'm going to turn it over to RCF's Pastor James. All right. Welcome back, guys, to uh, A Closer Look. Uh, here at the uh, Roseburg Christian Fellowship, and as we're going to walk, continue walking through the book of Revelation, and as we don't have time to quite dive in as deep as we would like on Sunday morning, so we're going to take a little time weekly to look at the churches or the chapter that we're going to be in on Sunday and get that out there. So just for those who want to dive a little deeper, take a closer look, we're going to do that. So today, as we're picking up in the book of Revelation, we are going to look at Revelation chapter 2, beginning at verse 18, which is the church of Thyatira. And it goes through the end of the chapter, verse 29. It is the longest of the seven letters that Jesus wrote to the churches. I find that pretty interesting as we're going to look at a church that is full of of compromise. So as we kind of really just look at the background, we don't dig in as much into the scriptures during our time here as we do that on Sunday. Um, but historically, and what's going on in this chapter, I think are pretty, pretty relevant. So in Thyatira, this little city as we're heading in here, the little historical background and just build a little map in your mind as we were Going in the seven churches, we've been going kind of north along the coast as we went from Ephesus to Smyrna. And then we began to kind of curve in about 20 miles on into Pergamos, which wasn't a coast town, but it was a university town, education center, if you remember. And so these seven churches will kind of make an an oval. And so as we went to Pergamos, we're now going to head 40 miles southeast of Pergamos to the town of Thyatira, right in between Pergamos and Sardis. In modern day, you would find the ruins of this town in a city, actually in the middle of a city, uh, about, you know, in between Istanbul and Izmir, or what used to be Smyrna, interesting enough. So this little town, Thyatira, it wasn't, it wasn't large like Ephesus, you know, Ephesus pushing over a quarter of a million people. And Pergamos, you know, it was large, probably similar size. This town's probably a little more like 30,000, give or take. So pretty close to us here in Roseburg. We can kind of feel that size. And I think we're going to feel a lot of similarities as the nuts and bolts of the city. Because it's a, it's a town that was really kind of manufacturing. A lot of more blue-collar stuff going on. Founded by Alexander the Great a few hundred years prior, um, this became a, a crucial military post for uh, everybody that really held on to it, whether it be Alexander or uh, the following kings after that, or even in as it was given to Rome in 133 AD. We talked a little bit about uh, that last week. It was, uh, it was a city that was really a crossroads between multiple places and multiple destinations, whether you wanted to go to Sardis or Pergamum or elsewhere in the empire. 
just uh, interesting and, and probably a little prophetic even with it being a city of crossroads because this city spiritually also was a city of crossroads. Many different directions and choices a person needed to make. Within this city, kind of the, what made up the, the guts of the working class, really were these trade guilds, these associations of artisans or craftsmen. They would generally form these guilds and they would make up usually from the same trade. Every guild really tightly held to a particular deity. A great number of them would would hold to Apollo, and I'll come back to him in, in a minute, but they would do this for blessing. They would do this for prosperity, for protection, and I think it really brought a unity to them. But every guild would have a deity or a god that they would surround themselves with. Now these guilds, this place, Thyatira here, it it was really kind of famous worldwide for its textiles, which is uh, for you laymen out there like me, I had to take the time to actually look it up, this clothing or cloth, it was famous for that. And I might actually pause that for somebody we know, we've heard of, that maybe haven't thought about being from Thyatira. So if you have your Bible, and if you don't, you can just listen. In Acts chapter 16, verse 14, Acts chapter 16, verse 14, we find this, this lady, as, as Paul was really searching where to go and where to share, God called him over to the bottom part of, of Europe, on over to Greece, and the Macedonia call there, if you recall from chapter 16. But in his ministry there, he meets, in verse 14, Now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira, who worshipped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. You know the story as she would be faithful and she'd dig in and, and eventually get them to stay with her in her house for a time. Uh, interesting, you know, as we talk about textiles and this being kind of manufactured city, that we have this lady in Acts chapter 16, as the Lord had found the church in Philippi, that she was over there, a seller of purple. Probably had some of these famous textiles there. Also, in this city, they were they had uh, silversmiths and, and coppersmiths that were really renowned and coveted across the world. Also, their, their pottery was world famous. Interesting enough, their, their water was just so, um, had so much minerals and things that it would actually be slightly colored, and they were able to make a great many colors and, and do some really neat things. A very, uh, I would just call it a really a blue collar town. Also, just kind of a military uh, post that protected Pergamos and other places. It was a very um, strategic place. A small, strategic, hard-working, um, kind of, you know, rough and tough crowd. So Apollo, as he would be a real main deity there, 
he was said to be a god of a multitude of things. He was, if you were to believe in in you know your pagan gods, he was he was a go-to guy. He was the god of archery and music and dance and truth and prophecy and healing and over disease and the sun and light. <laughs> he was the son of Zeus. So in the Greek culture, he was the son of the highest god. And perhaps that gives us a little insight on why Jesus mentions the fact that he is the son of God to this particular church. Now, as I'll get into on Sunday, I think it's a little bit deeper than that, but that's, you know, historically, I think that that's noteworthy that the the deity that most of them worshipped was known to be the son of their most high God. And as they would go into the temple, these trade guilds, now this was this is what made it tough for the Christians in Thyatira. These trade guilds, you, you really couldn't work without being a part of one. It was really kind of a closed city, closed shop, if you will. If you weren't in the union, you didn't work. And as it would bring great strength to their trade and manufacturing, it also posed a problem because once or twice a year or with that you know for sure they would they would go up and they would honor the god apollo with just um horrifically immoral celebrations and worship of this deity and and of course the christians wouldn't do that but the real strife came when you know if you didn't show up many felt that you would anger apollo You'd bring trouble or maybe not quite as much blessing on your on your guild, on your union. And, and so you would you'd be persecuted, you'd be put out, which meant there went your livelihood. You probably weren't gonna work. And maybe that's why Lydia was over there in, in Philippi and, and spent a lot of time over there. Maybe it was easier to do, but in Thyatira. And maybe you didn't lose your life in like in Smyrna. But to lose your job, not just today, but what your parents did, what you were trained to do, the future for where you lived was all going away. And this brought a real challenge for the Christians there. Would I compromise? Would I become tolerant? Or would I make a stand for Jesus? Now, Jesus knew the works of this church, and he said, hey, man, your works, they're actually better now than when you first started. In verse 19, it says, I know your works, your love, your service, your faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. So basically, you know, he, this, is, this is a letter that does give comfort and encouragement, even though it has to talk about hard things. And he tells the church, hey, good job. And, and you know what? Your works that were good, I know them. And in fact, today, they're better than when you first got started. You know, like, like a Christian today, you, you may take advantage of the internet. You may take advantage of all sorts of media, and we get the gospel out in ways that are just unbelievable, that can cover great ground. And, and I think things like that, Jesus is like, hey, good job. But that's not the end of the story. If it's not in Jesus' name, if it's not for him, if it's not for love, it's just the fact that we're just doing a better job, 
That's not so good. Or like for this church, it says, Nevertheless, in verse 20, I have a few things against you that you allow that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things, sacrifice to idols. All right, so we talked a little bit about that last week, but this kind of takes it to the next level. Not just that there was somebody um, teaching the uh, doctrine of Balaam, which was mixture. Now, this, this is, church has got someone in their midst taking it to the next level. Was Jezebel a real person? Probably. Probably. Was that her real name? Don't know. Don't know. But here's one thing we know from archaeology and from this letter, that this church had embraced how to be tolerant. Tolerant. To compromise. And boy, if you look at the modern denominations or this church, you can definitely say without a doubt there is no good fruit that comes from this. You know, as you look at modern denominations and they want to be inclusive and they're bringing in all this stuff and say you can preach and be in the midst of the most prohibited sexual immorality in Scripture and, oh, no, it's all good. I just want to show you how much our love, you know, love wins, compromise. But it has not produced anything except for more corruption. And the same in Thyatira. It's just a principle you can't get away from. In, in archaeology, they found within houses of worship idols and images that were dedicated to Greek gods. One very noteworthy, I believe it was a synagogue, could have been a church, but it was right next to the gymnasium, which was, which was this place of competition often done in the nude, and it was just this, you know, you planted it right next to it to show how wonderful and inclusive and tolerant you are. It was the key to success in that day and in that culture. But here's the problem with uh, jumping in with the toleration culture, the compromise culture is that they're, they'll, they'll love you to death and they'll bring you in unless you don't agree. Boy, don't we see that unfold today in cancel culture. You can embrace anything that the cancel culture says is good, but if you state one thing or you stand against that, you're out. That was Thyatira. If you want to jump in with Apollos and you want to grab 14,000 other gods from anywhere else, as long as you were going with what the cancel culture said too, you were good. But if you said that Jesus was the Son of God, if you said that there was a right and a wrong, that there were things you shouldn't do, they were out. They would lose their job. They would lose their ability to function and buy and sell and trade you know think about that today if you stand for that they'll boycott you and cancel you interesting correlation there you guys can dig into that some more as you as you will but interesting this this gal Jezebel and we'll probably take a look back in in first kings chapter 16 in just a minute but Jezebel was this interesting gal back back in the days of Ahab 
she led the king to worship gods of her land, multiple and idolatrous, instead of the God of Israel. Again, this inclusive versus the God that says it is the truth. Ahab married Jezebel to help solidify trade. Isn't that interesting that the Lord would reach in to when they would be compromising and tolerant and, and outright sinning to make sure that they could keep good trade? So that's what Ahab did with Jezebel. This was some of the worst times in Israel. Again, let's go ahead and turn back to that. I want to read just a few verses from that back there. And let's go back to 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 31. Now in that says, And it came to pass, as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he took as wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. Now let's keep going. Verse 32, Then he set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal, and he had built, which he had built in Samaria. And Ahab made a wooden image. And Ahab did more to provoke the Lord. God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Mm. So as he compromised and he brought idolatry into the worship of the Lord, as this opportunity to open up trade and prosperity, they brought in this lady who taught idolatry and sexual immorality. And Jesus reaches back to that and said, You've got somebody in your midst just like that. And it was a legitimate position, just as the queen was, so as a prophetess in the New Testament. There's nothing wrong. In fact, the Lord endorses and raises up and calls women to prophesy. But I think if there is one derailment in there is that she's teaching. Prophets were never called to teach. The Israelite men, or teachers specifically that God calls, or elders that set the doctrine, but it wasn't for the prophets, male or female. That was not their position. And so as we reach that, it gives us great insight. But I also want to touch on the, his, the history of Jezebel and Ahab as it relates to also, that prophetic picture, as Revelation is prophecy, to the time period which Thyatira represents. As we talked about Ephesus being that first hundred years, and then Smyrna being from Nero to 313 in the ten waves of persecution. And then as we saw the, the compromise as we moved on to Pergamos, or that unholy marriage, that perverted union between church and state church in the world, the doctrine of mixture from 313 A.D. to about 600 A.D. We move on to this time of just corruption and toleration and compromise, which would gives us a great picture of the church from 600 A.D. to the Reformation. And as we, we dabble on this, I just I want you to really consider 
some of this. In 1 Kings chapter 21, I would just make special note of verses 3 through 6 and 15 through 16. I was going to read that out of 1 Kings 21, but I'll just do a little bit of a summary and you can read it for yourself. Ahab really wanted this vineyard of Nabal's. But Nabal, whether it's because the maybe he didn't want he wanted to obey the law and didn't want the the property to go outside of his family, maybe he just didn't want to do it, but he said, "Hey, God doesn't want me to do this. Ahab was pretty upset, wanted it. Hey, this was a great place. Goes home and, and Jezebel's like, hey, what's the matter? And he tells her, hey, wouldn't sell it to me. I really want it. And she said, hey, don't sweat it, bro. I got it. I'll, I'll get that for you. And she uh, has these letters sent out and, and gathers up all the elders and and sits Nabal in this this. Uh, position of uh, yeah, where everybody's just kind of paying attention to him and they say okay when this happens you're going to bring these false accusations a couple scoundrels are going to make these false ac- accusations that you have blasphemed and then he's going to get stoned and so it came to pass and, and she came back and said hey he's dead do you want it and he went down and he got it so as we look at this time frame between the 600 AD in church history to around the Reformation, when even worse and more gross idolatry was brought into the church, where this time where this doctrine of Jezebel and what she was teaching was just infiltrated the whole church. Think of the times when someone simply wanted to translate the scriptures into a language that people could read and not just the elect priesthood as we dealt with with Pergamos. They could be brought forth and many were killed for getting the scriptures out. Or if they believed in in doctrines that were based on the scriptures, they were drugged into these false courts and then would be killed. It was a time when the church acquired property or power through false trials. And interesting that Jezebel not only historically did that, not only were some of these things going on in Thyatira, but during this period in church history, these kind of mock trials false accusations to gain power and authority or property in the midst of idolatry and immorality the buying you know paying money so that you could go out and freely sin what a horrible time indeed it was but Jesus doesn't leave him there he leaves him with hope because again these are letters not to say goodbye I've dismissed you but they are of correction and hope. And so as he wraps up this letter to this church, he says, you know, I'm going to deal with her and I'm going to deal with her offspring. But I know that there are some of you that have stood for me and you stand out. You didn't buy into the deep philosophies or the, the greater understanding, the depths of Satan, she says, it, Jesus says in verse 24. But he says, hold fast. And I'm going to give you power over the nations. Those vessels or those instruments, those 
things of authority over you, you're going to dash them into pieces like, like an iron rod on potter's vessels. But here's the real bonus for this church. Here's the real bonus for you and I. In verse 28, I will give him the morning star, which I believe is Jesus. Just like with Abraham being called out of idolatry or to the saints that have gone throughout the millenniums, he is our great and exceedingly wonderful reward. And he's worth standing in a generation that won't. He's worth not compromising in a generation that is compromising. It is worth being called intolerant in a world that is tolerant, that claims tolerancy with cancel culture mentality. And I think it reminds me, and I'll close with this, that time when the idol was made and the children of Israel had rose up to play as God was giving his word on Mount Sinai. When he came down and smashed the law. Always remind me of a Sunday school joke. Why was Moses the most evil man in the Bible? Because he broke all Ten Commandments at once. (laughs) But as that incident unfolded, he made the statement, those who are with the Lord come to me. Those who are on the Lord's side, separate yourselves. And they did. And they did. And there was judgment that came to those who gave in idolatry. And there was salvation and a future blessing of ministry to those who stood on the Lord's side. And may God bless you guys as you guys continue to dig in. Hey, you can always shoot me an email with any other interesting facts or thoughts about this historical, prophetical place, Thyatira at jwafer at rcf.cc. May the Lord Jesus Christ richly bless you guys, and uh, hopefully we'll see you on Sunday. Bye.